I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go for another really beautiful episode. My guest for today is Heidi Delzell, and what a beautiful soul Heidi is. We talk about two really important topics. One is eating disorders and midlife, which is not a population that gets a lot of recognition. And the other is eating disorders in the LGBTQIAA plus community. I don't think I have to say anything more in this introduction. Let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so thrilled to have our guest today, Heidi Delzell. Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm really glad to have you. There's a lot to talk about. And so I think, you know, we're going to jump right in. Heidi, can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Of course. So um, I am a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in the Philadelphia area. And I specialize in working with women, particularly at midlife, who come in with eating disorders. Of course, I also treat other other folks as well. I treat men. I treat some teens. I, I work a lot with people in the LGBT community and just love the work. It's, it's one of my favorite things is coming into the office every day and just getting to help people and be there for them. Um, I'd like to add too that I am also in recovery. So I think that really drives my work and informs me. I think it's 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 just an extra piece that makes us passionate about the work. Um, you know, and I've often said on this show that I've worked with eating disorder therapists who have never had an eating disorder, hands down, phenomenal. I know for me, being recovered from an eating disorder is just one extra thing that just drives me and gives me passion to work, help people work through this. There's a lot of misconceptions about eating disorders. I like clarifying misconceptions. I don't know if you have something to say because you just you lit up when I said that or if you you're just agreeing. Oh my goodness. I mean in in the um in the area that I'm really passionate about, which is helping midlife women, so many misconceptions, just starting with the misconception that women at midlife can't get eating disorders. And that keeps so many people from seeking the treatment and help that they need. I I don't even know where to begin with this because it's so important. First of all, I have so many clients that are midlife and A, are embarrassed 
they're they're ashamed as it is to have an eating disorder. And then as they say, it's like a young girl's disease. They don't feel like they fit in at treatment centers. They don't get the same understanding and compassion as younger people. Heidi, where do we begin with this conversation? I mean, we could probably spend the whole rest of the podcast talking about this, honestly, because I have so many examples, um, all of which clients, of course, have given me clearance to be able to share just in the interest of educating others. You know, I have a client that's popping into my head as as we're talking, and this is a woman who is in her early 50s who literally for months, her dietitian and I had spoken to her about that need for a higher level of care. You know, so slowly but surely, she was able to take the recommendation and went into a treatment center. The first treatment center she went into was completely filled with 18-year-olds. So that's what they considered their adult program. Um, she left after a week. Um, I, You know, sometimes I wonder how she gave it that long and came back home. And so we looked into a local program that was more of a partial hospital program. At the intake itself, there was a nurse practitioner who said to her, how does someone your age have an eating disorder? I I know, I'm looking at your face right now. That was my face. Listeners can't see this. I'm, I'm gasping. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but please just continue and say, how did this client navigate through that? What did that make that? How did it make that client feel? I mean, it made it made her feel 10 times worse. It really did. It just magnified the shame that she was already experiencing. And honestly, she wasn't able to accept treatment at that treatment center after that. Um, you know, I, I did wind up reaching out and talking to the medical director there and did a lot of education. But this client, we wound up, it wound up working out for the best because we were able to develop more of a program that I think was well-suited, more of a customized program for her. But it took us such a long time to get past that shame. And I see that shame every day. Um, I have a Facebook group that I run for women at midlife, just, you know, kind of this place that they can get support and help and, you know, so many times that initial way that they introduce themselves to share, I'm so glad that I found this group because I feel so much shame being a person who's a mother, who's a wife, who's maybe an executive, who's also struggling with an eating disorder. And so it's just shame is rampant. Again, my mind is going in so many directions. Let's start with the the one who's the mother. So I have clients that are in midlife and are terrified to go into treatment because they don't want to leave their children. They're afraid of the impact it's going to have on their children. They're afraid of the amount of responsibility that may be left on their partner. All these things how do you guide somebody? Because that's complicated. And at the end of the day, the client needs and deserves treatment. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I saw a really interesting quote, and it was, it didn't have an attribution, but it's, uh, it's one that's really stuck with me. And that quote was, the greatest gift that we can give our children is our own recovery. And 
I'll tell you, if I share that with clients, it really hits home for them. And they begin to understand that, you know, as mothers, as, you know, in all these roles that I've already mentioned, we do our best, but we can't really be our best selves when we're struggling with an eating disorder. There's always part of us that's distracted, that's not there with our kids, and that's thinking about that next meal, how to avoid it, what our binge might look like. No matter what it is, we're not 100% there in the moment. And I think when we can talk through those kinds of things and reassure women that if they can take that time for themselves right now to get better and to recover, they'll be an even better, even stronger parent. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to keep sort of like bombarding these you with these questions. So now let's go to the CEO or the school teacher. Doesn't matter what what the job is. It's not easy, but an 18-year-old can take a leave of absence from school. It uh, please hear me again, I'm not invalidating saying, "Oh, poof, just do it." But how do you say to somebody, how do you help guide an adult client through having to leave their professional job and say, it's necessary. You you have, to, it's actually non-negotiable. How do you help with that, Heidi? Probably all those things that you just said are part of the conversation. And I, I think that the biggest part of it is validating that they do have to begin to put themselves first, that until they can do that, they won't get better. And in fact, you know, making a lot of the linkages between often stressful life positions and roles and their eating disorders. Um, I find that for women, especially women of this age, it is a lot more challenging because they do have the multiple roles that we're discussing. And so a lot of times it takes them longer. So Like the client that I mentioned a little bit earlier, it may be that we're talking about this for a really long time. We're talking about, okay, what would need to be put into place and whose support do you need and how can you share this with your place of work in a way that that still allows you your privacy but impresses upon them that you need to have this time for treatment. And you know, most workplaces, they they do want to be supportive. I mean, there's a rare, the rare workplace that they don't. And, you know, it might not be, they might, that client might find that that's really not the right fit in their life if they can't take the time off to go into treatment and care for themselves. But it is, it's a slow process. It's a steady process. It's a process of learning that it's okay to put themselves in their recovery first and that work will wait. And that isn't, you know, sometimes it's realigning those values. Yeah. Yeah. It's also helping them understand that they believe it or not. And I know a lot of, um, I I don't know if I just want to say women, I want to be very careful. A lot of people feel like they're the problem solver of the family, the problem solver at the job, you know, whatever it is. And what I say to clients is, everything, it might not go as smoothly as when you're home, but it's going to still work out. Your partner can still do this. Your job will, 
is it going to go, like I said, smoothly? No, but neither is your life right now because of the eating disorder. Right. No, I agree with you. Anyone who has to who has to step out of their daily life and step into treatment, it, it won't run as smoothly because I think we're all really good at taking on way more than we need to. And, you know, I can I can speak for myself. That's still a work in progress for me. And I I think that when you can reassure them in the way that you just did, and they can be okay with letting go of a little bit of that control not only do they let go of control with their life, they might begin to loosen some of the control with the eating disorder too. Are you noticing an uptick in adult women and men that are showing up due to the pandemic? Oh my goodness. If I, if I tell you, we can't even keep up with our phone lines and we, we really do do our best, but we have had, and, and um, I'm also part of an eating disorder group in addition to having a private practice. And we have just seen our phone lines exploding. So many people who are seeking help, which is really positive that they've been able to do that because you know a lot of times one of the advantages to working from home is they can take a break in the middle of the day and do a session right from home. And that's been really helpful. But the numbers of people reaching out, are, I, I have never seen this many people reaching out and needing treatment. You know, I think that leads me to talking about sort of some of the myths that, that about adults and eating disorders. There are a number of things that come to my mind. First of all, there are so many people with either a subclinical or an undiagnosed eating disorder that are in just as much suffering. And tragedies like the pandemic can be the tipping point. There are so many people, you and I both went through our eating disorder in the 80s when there were no treatment centers. And so I am, I thank God that I stayed within like how do i say this forgive me everyone i i worked through it myself without patient therapy which i don't wish upon anyone because it was so difficult but unfortunately there's a lot of people men and women about our age treatment centers weren't provided so not only did they white knuckle it but they didn't really learn all the skills which is why relapse happens at times like this go ahead yeah, no, no. I was going to say, um, I, I share a similar story, you know, in the 80s where, you know, there was so much emphasis, no different really than today on how people looked. And it was the culture of Jane Fonda. And, you know, we were just starting to come into our own and understand eating disorders. And, you know, um, I I was sharing with you uh, a little bit earlier that I had, I had read a book that really influenced me. I, I'm not going to name the name because I don't like to do that. Um, but years later, I was in the elevator with the person who at a conference, the Renfrew conference with the person who wrote this book. And I was both starstruck. And at the same time, I wanted to say, ah, why did you give me a roadmap to create an eating disorder? But there was no, there was no real roadmap on recovery. You know, at, at that time, I feel like for me, I recovered medically. So, you know, I, I stabilized medically, but I didn't have outpatient treatment until years later. 
And I still find that at times with my own therapist, I'm working on those issues that maybe I should have worked on years ago, um, like perfectionism and control and all the things that are still points of learning for me. And it's it's great that I can do that now, but I wish those resources would have been available. And that's why I really encourage people to take take advantage of the resources that are available. I also want to say that there are people that have never had an eating disorder and midlife, everything lines up and they start struggling. So I don't want to dismiss it and say it's just people that had one when they were younger. And now I've had clients that I'm now working with that say, what is happening? I am a 54-year-old person. I never had an eating disorder and I have an eating disorder. I'm like, yeah, it's it's really challenging to be in this world right now. It's really wonderful, but it's really challenging, Heidi. Right. And what, what I see at midlife is there's kind of three different camps of people. There's those pe- There are those people who um, maybe at some point they fully recovered from an eating disorder and they are having the relapse that we've, you know, kind of discussed. Then there are those people who have never had an eating disorder. And it is, it's a first time experience for them. And I'll hold that thought for a moment, but I want to say the third group, which is those people who've been kind of in this partial recovery. So, you know, they've struggled on and off. They, they've never really gotten to full recovery. And the eating disorder has been the thing that, you know, has just kept coming back and coming back. What I also just thought of is when you said, I think the second group, the ones that have never had an eating disorder, I also want to say that ageism is a real and a challenging thing for people to go through. I am going to say, I think more for women than for men, but please hear me. I do not want to make a, a, a blanket statement. I do know there is always like the man gets sexier as he gets older and the woman just sort of, even when you said the era of Jane Fonda, I am 51 years old. And I think I look older than Jane Fonda because of all of the work she's done. Also hear me, everyone, lover as an actress, could watch Grace and Frankie all the time. But it's we are just as subjected to these unrealistic ideals as when we were younger. I don't know if you have anything to say to that. Yeah, no, most definitely. And, you know, it's funny because... One of the things that I often look at when I'm looking, you know, so I'm looking through a magazine or I'm looking at the images we see in the media is the only women that we see who are of that certain age, the 40s plus or 50s woman is, are those women who look like they could be at least 10 years younger, if not more. And, but in real life, a lot of us, you know, choose not to get work done and choose to be who we are in the world. and. I'll tell you, Karen, we're competing with women sometimes in the workplace who are many, many years younger and who are, you know, getting attention and who are, you know, and I wish that competitive competitiveness wasn't there, but it is sometimes. And so they do, they're, they, a lot of the people that I work with, especially the women feel like they're starting to be invisible in their jobs or in their relationships or, other places in the world, ageism is alive and well. 
I know. I also don't know if people know that a lot of times, often when you see like a model on the cover of a, a magazine modeling adult clothing, they're often young teenagers. And so we perceive what a woman is supposed to look like and say, or we look at these ads and they're modeling, you know, you know, cocktail wear and evening clothes and office clothes. And some of them haven't even gone through puberty. Well, I don't want to say that. I mean, they're, they're a little bit old. Some of them are like 16, 17 year old young girls. And that then creates the image of what an adult woman is supposed to look like. A hundred percent. I mean, I don't know about you because I'm seeing kind of the top half of you, but I've got hips. <laughs> and and that's how most women are built. We have hips. We have more of a figure that has some curves and that's perfectly okay, but we're not being shown that that's okay. We're being shown these younger models or people who are, you know, photoshopped and thinned out. And that's what we're expected to live up to. Yeah. I also want to point out, and and maybe people are more educated, but there is a time in your young life where you don't understand that things are airbrushed and photoshopped. You, you haven't been exposed to it yet, but you're still exposed to those images. So I know for myself at a very young age, I was like glued to like 17 magazine, Cosmo magazine, all these magazines. And I didn't understand and so that became my ideal image of what beauty was, flawless, no curves, nothing. Like, you know, we're not born knowing about Photoshop. It's something that you learn, but sometimes the damage is already done. But I think that even if you know it, it doesn't necessarily sink in. So um, I'm even thinking about Facebook, for instance. And so many times I hear my clients come in and they're, you know, they're lamenting like, oh, so-and-so posted a picture of me, I looked awful, or look at this picture of this person, so perfect. And, you know, I say to them all the time, okay, well, that's probably the 21st picture that they took at a very certain angle. And then they've used a retouching program and, you know, on and on and on, because we're shown only a glimpse of of people's lives were shown only a glimpse of what someone actually looks like. And I think that keeping it, it's really helpful to keep that in mind as we're seeing these images that we're so affected by still at even old, even at, you know, older ages. And, you know, I work with women who are at midlife. I work with people who are in their sixties and seventies and eighties, and they're still affected by these images. It's it's pretty powerful. We're also so bombarded by it and not even aware of how much we're being bombarded by these images. Um, I know that I was getting very overwhelmed at one point during the pandemic. The news became very difficult for me to watch. And I turned the news off. I, I usually start my morning with my coffee in my bed and I watch the news. It's just the way I usually start the day. I noticed I was getting very agitated. So sort of like as a, as a trial, as an experiment, I stopped watching the news for about three weeks in the morning. 
I have got to tell you, my anxiety went down, my everything, everything that was getting activated in me. And I'm not blaming all of the news or TV, but even when we're walking out of the room, we're still hearing things about the diets, about the pandemic, about all these things. And it's, it's just, we just keep getting bombarded by it and we're not even aware. I, I agree. I think one of the best things we can do for ourselves is not to oversaturate with news or anything else. And I've, I've had a couple of clients that I've worked with who really have made the conscious decision not to expose themselves to any, any news or any television shows of a certain kind. And it's worked for them. And believe me, if, if something big happens in the world, they'll find out. They'll know. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I agree. Heidi, I want to sort of, if if it's okay, I want to take a really hard turn. I would love for you to talk about the book that you've written and your work that you do with the transgender community, you know, the LGBTQ, uh, please forgive me, IAA, I believe it is, and, and forgive me if I don't have it correctly. Um, can you speak to that? And I hope it's okay. I know it's a hard turn, but I also want to make sure we really talk about that as well. Right. But it's it's very much what we've already been talking about, you know, to some extent, because we've been talking about voices in recovery that really need to be amplified. And I think when we think about eating disorders, you know, if, if you think about an eating disorder, we've already said, you know, we think of young, we think of female, um, we often think of anorexia as being the only eating disorder. And so we don't necessarily look at those di- more diverse clients who come in with eating disorders. Um, I've been working with uh, the transgender, the, the non-binary, the gender expansive is kind of that umbrella term that I'll use. I've been working with that population for quite some time now. Um, I would I would estimate probably the past 15 to 20 years. Um, if I look at it for the at the LGBT population, of course, and we just kind of say LGBTQ plus because there are so many identities that uh, that we can't include if if we include other initials. And so not to marginalize or minimize any of those identities, but I'll just use the plus sign right now. Um, there, there are just um, so many reasons that people within the gender expansive community develop eating disorders. Many of them go back to body and that experience of non-congruence in one's body and different ways that we actually have to control and change the body. So when we bring it down to that aspect of it, it's the same, but it's different. Because everybody, just about everybody, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't make any hard and fast rules, but many people that I work with with eating disorders develop them in an effort to change the body. Now, for people who are identifying within within a different gender or non-gendered, there may be things about the body that are very, you know, very much that they do need to change in order to really change their self-esteem and how they feel about themselves. And so what we want to do is we want to figure out what are those healthy ways that we can achieve body changes rather than through an eating disorder. 
Can you give some examples? Because I'm imagining people are, are listening right now and saying, what are they? Yeah. So, th- so there's, uh, there's medical ways, there's non-medical ways. So I'll start with some of the non-medical ways. Um, you know, I'll give an example of someone I'm working with right now who is an older teen who's, uh, you know, just kind of coming into gender identity and doing a lot of exploration. And so um, some simple things we've done. So this is a teen who is assigned female at birth, meaning um, they were born into a body that we may look at and identify as female. And what, what this person is grappling with is, do I feel more like a male and that a male body would be more congruent with my identity. And so one of the things that we've done, well, a couple of things we've done very simply off off the bat is that particular client has changed their hairstyle uh, to a much less feminine hairstyle, has changed their clothing choices, um, has tried on the use of a new name, a name that is identifiably a male name, Um, And those are just some of the starts. And that's already resulted in a lessening of gender dysphoria, meaning that experience of not feeling like their identity is congruent with their body or with the way people see them. Yeah. It's, by the way, as you're saying that, like I was just smiling while you were saying that because I'm imagining that it is a... I'm going to take a step back, but, but a big part is like you said, not feeling congruent with the body that you were born in. And I think some people are terrified of making surgical decisions, medical decisions in that sense. And so there are ways that we can help somebody, as you said, feel like they're, I don't want to say dressing the part because please, I feel like when, when they were dressed feminine using this example, they were dressing the part and, and maybe now, you know, going more towards what's internalized, how they feel. And I, I don't know what your thoughts are about surgical procedures because I, I don't, I don't know any, any thoughts. Well, you know, it's it's always with with any client situation, it's always a case by case basis. And you know, so when I feel like when people come in, part of the really the biggest part of the therapy is ex- exploration, exploring what is it that will make you feel better and what is it that you need. And so, you know, if a person comes in, let's say, say so um I'm thinking of another client and the point of dysphoria is the monthly menstrual cycle, for instance. We don't necessarily surgically have to remove the ovaries to stop a menstrual cycle, but we sometimes do have to have a medical approach, and that might mean taking a hormone or, you know, in this case, some birth control to stop the monthly period. So there are interim measures that we can take first and kind of see. And I think of this as it's a step and we try it on. It's a step and we try it on. Um, same for same for something like having a surgical mastectomy for gender affirmation. Um, we first would want to try on something like a binder and see how that works and see, does that reduce gender dysphoria? Just because it's a yes doesn't mean then we don't perceive the surgery. It just may mean that's our confirmation that surgery is the way to go for, you know, for some clients, the binder might be enough. 
until they're really sure that they want to go through and proceed with some surgical interventions. Would you speak a little bit to the book? I believe you co-authored it. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. Can you speak a little bit to your book? Yes, certainly. So um, my co-author's name is Katie Protos. Uh, She's a clinical social worker. And we what we really wanted to do is we wanted to give clinicians a way that they can work with people who are gender expansive and who are coming in with an eating disorder or body image issues. And so it's a clinical guide and we use a lot of examples, um, you know, hypothetical examples. We use a lot of um, exercises that clinicians, we include a lot of exercises that clinicians can use with their clients in order to reflect. Um, They can also use it with themselves to reflect. And one of the most important things of working with any marginalized group, as, as I know you know, Karen, is being able to look at our own privilege. And so we look a lot at body privilege and what that means. And, you know, the fact that someone who is uh, transgender may not have the same options of clothing or may not have the same um Uh, they might walk into your room and immediately just because of their appearance be outed as a certain gender. That isn't how they feel. And so there's so much about privilege that we explore and so many different areas that we touch on. Um, We also talk a lot about the continuum of body image and how at each stages of that, each of the stages of that continuum, so ranging from when a lot of clients come in, they may experience this state of body hatred and dissociation. So they're not at all connected to their bodies or they hate their bodies. And how we start to move them along the continuum to a place of body acceptance. And then ultimately, for some clients, that experience of body ownership. So, you know, the body image continuum is something that we use with all of our clients, but it's especially helpful with uh, working with this particular population um, that we love working with. Can you say a little bit about um, the difference between body acceptance and body ownership? I would love to, because that's one of the areas that, you know, I I work so much with all my clients on that. So, um, So I think of it as the difference between a state of non-judgment Um, which we might kind of attribute to things like mindfulness practices or some DBT skills, um, comparing that state to a state of self-compassion and love. And so if we think about body image in general, um, you know, one of the most helpful things is going from being very judgmental of our own bodies to being neutral and accepting of our bodies. So first neutrality and then acceptance. Now, it's much taller order to start to love our bodies. And so when I think about body acceptance, I think about more of the neutrality. When I think about body ownership, I think more about self-compassion and self-love. I, th- I think it's a really important distinction because I think the term body acceptance scares people. Yeah, it, it really does because... and. What I hear from my clients a lot is if I accept my body where it is, then I'm accepting imperfections and I'm accepting that I can no longer make any changes, even healthy changes to my body. And we always talk about, no, really acceptance means 
being in a place where you can nurture your body, where you're, where that inner critic isn't constantly speaking to you, and where the obsessive voice about what kind of exercise you do, how you'll eat or not eat, where that all quiets. And so that's what body acceptance is. Yeah, I, again, I know clients really get a little agitated when I, when I use that term until I explain it the way that you, you know, the way you just did, because I also know the word acceptance doesn't mean that you're like, golly gee, I accept it. Everything's hunky-dory. Acceptance means I accept that this comes with frustration or disappointment, whatever it is, I accept that that's there. So I'm no longer fighting against it by trying to manipulate my body and saying, I don't accept it. I don't accept it. So I'm going to use every eating disorder behavior possible because I can't tolerate it. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, no. I was going to say it's, I think acceptance is just, it's just a step that lets us, and, and you know, I think part of acceptance is you might also be accepting that you're in a body that may never be the body you, that you thought it, that you would like to have. I mean, I am five feet tall. I am never going to be in Ivanka Trump's body. And believe me, I have some clients who that is their burning desire, even though they're built just the same way I am. So acceptance has so many layers to it. And this is not easy work to get to a place of any form of acceptance or any form of neutrality. Are you able to speak to how you moved through your own experience without treatment being available. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, I have, of course, I I've seen, I, I have a therapist that I still work with and, you know, through the years I've, you know, I've been pretty consistent in therapy, especially since the pandemic, but even, even before that, of course. And, you know, before I, I did seek outpatient treatment eventually, but it wasn't, it wasn't for many years post, um, post recovery, but I felt in a way, you know, like you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, that idea, and I don't love this term, but I think people might understand who are in the program might understand. We talk about being a dry drunk, which means you might not be drinking, but that doesn't mean that all the behaviors and all the thoughts have changed. And so I kind of think that way about the eating disorder. I may not have been acting on eating disorder symptoms and behaviors, but there was a lot underlying it for me that could have easily brought me back there. And the biggest things, the biggest things for me, I would say were control and perfection. And, you know, I'm still, I've still working on control, as I mentioned. Um, I really feel like I've worked a lot on reducing perfectionism and not needing to always be so perfect, but that that's been something that I've looked at for a long time in my life. And so when you think about perfection, it really speaks to this idea of accepting that things are inherently flawed at times, are imperfect, accepting that we're human and that we don't have to be supermen and superwomen, and giving ourselves some grace. And that's really what it came down to for me. Now, the self-compassion practices and, you know, self-love, you know, again, I feel like it's something I, I love Buddhist philosophy. 
Um, I love things like meta meditation, where you're offering yourself loving kindness. And those are the kind, those are the kinds of tools I've been able to put into place for myself throughout my own recovery. Can you speak to any of them or is that too broad of a question? Oh, no, I'll, I'll, def, I'll, def, I can definitely speak to, to some, I'll, I'll point out some highlights. So, um, in terms of, you know, certainly in terms of the non-judgment, um, a lot of mindfulness practices and, you know, thinking about something as simple as, you know, if you were here with me right now and I handed you a mug, okay. Having you describe that mug and having you use language or think about it in language that's more neutral that doesn't have a judgment attached to it. So if I hold up this, this bunk here, which I'm, I'm doing right now for Karen, I'm not going to say, I really love that mug. It's such a beautiful color. I'm just going to describe, okay, that's a teal mug that I'm holding up right now. And so to help clients and for myself too, looking at the objective components of things. So objectivity doesn't have to have judgment attached to it because maybe I really like that teal color, but when I just held it up, Karen didn't like that teal color. And so seeing that judgment is that judgments and evaluations can be so individualized. And for people with eating disorders, we're our own harshest critic. And so another tool that I think is really important is looking at our own internal self-talk and at that own di- our own dialogue of what do we say to ourselves on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, moment-to-moment. You know, if I pass by a mirror and I start saying to myself, oh my God, how did you wear that outfit today? It looks awful on you. I'm going to affect how I feel about it and how I feel about myself and the whole tenor of the day rather than walking by and just acknowledging, okay, well, you know, today I'm wearing a gray and white striped shirt, you know, so learning to make our, our language and our thought process non-judgmental. And then in terms of getting more to self-compassion, the easiest tool for this, and my, my clients, my clients now, they say it, they know it because they know that's where I'm going. What would you say to a friend? What would you say to someone you love? So if someone comes into me and I had this experience with someone the other day and they say, they said to me, you know, I don't feel like I need to recover. I feel like things are fine the way they are. And I'll say, well, you know, would you say that to your daughter if she was coming in and she had the same thing going on for her, the same symptoms, what would you say to her, that person you love? And it's always that dead stop of, no, I wouldn't say that to another person. I also always try to unpack that a little more, especially when you use the metaphor of what if it was your daughter, your young daughter, what would you say? Why? I want you to, I want to, I want you to speak it all out because this is your healthy voice. So you have a healthy voice. You're just not utilizing it. Exactly. And you're probably going to say to your daughter or that friend, I love you. I love everything about you. You you absolutely deserve to take the time to get the treatment and the help that you need. And living in this in-between state of not recovered, you know, it's just, it's painful to watch that. And, you know, I really hope that you can learn to love yourself enough to get the help you need. I've often said to clients, I feel, sometimes clients say, I want to recover just enough. 
I want to recover to get my treatment team off my back, my family. Maybe I want to recover if you're a woman to get my period back or whatever it is. And I say to them, oh my God, that's horrible. That's hell. That's purgatory. Yeah, exactly. That state that we were talking about earlier, partial recovery. I mean, A, it's a slippery slope. Heck yeah. Because you know you're falling back down that slope as soon as that first trigger. And we we were talking about, you know, triggers in the in the world and we run into so many of them. And as soon as that first trigger occurs, it's so easy to fall back on these behaviors. Um, but the in-between state of not being fully recovered, it is that place of just never really feeling good enough, never feeling like you deserve all the good things that come with life. It also, as you said, sets you up. Nobody anticipated a pandemic. If you've gone the last 15 years and sort of like, as I I use the term subclinical eating disorder, meaning you're kind of in it, you're kind of, you know, a little bit still there. Real life issues are going to throw you. It is going to, it is most likely going to quickly send you back into relapse. Look at what we're dealing with right now. The fear of the unknown health-wise for everybody. So that's fear of the unknown is really hard with an eating disorder. Isolation, because we're not going out. So isolation always plays a big part in the eating disorder. Bombarded by social media, additional stressors. And by the way, that is life. I am getting through the pandemic as someone who's fully recovered, has been recovered for 25 years by doing all the opposite. Because I know what is going to be in the best interest of my own mental health. Oh, I need to reach out for support. I need to not isolate. I need to ask questions where I don't, like it is It is just, and by the way, it doesn't have to be as big as a pandemic. Exactly. I mean, there are triggers out there in the world all the time and it's so easy to slide back. And you know, it's been such a challenging time for people. And I found for myself, same same thing, you know, I, I tend to be more of an introvert, but one of those social introverts where I like to go out and do things. I, I'm really active. I love to travel. I love concerts, all of those different things that I haven't been able to do in over a year now. And, you know, so reaching, digging deep down and trying to figure out how is it that I can spend my time? What feels meaningful? What will feel good to me? How can I continue to take care of myself first and foremost throughout this really stressful time? Yeah, it's it's been unbelievable. I want to add one more thing and we're going to have to start winding down and I always hate saying that. I think people look at recovered people and think, they never look in the mirror and and have a bad self-image. They never, you know, everything is perfect and blah, blah, blah. Hence, one of the reasons for the podcast. I know some of the things that have kept me recovered is consciously doing things like, like you were talking about walking by a mirror and saying like, oh my God, the shirt, the this. I know that there are times when I'll be walking down the street and I just feel good. Like I'm well rested. I've just had a great conversation with somebody. The sun is shining or whatever. And I just feel good. And I can walk by windows and 
before I turn and look at my my image in the in those windows, I say to myself, I'm probably going to see something that I'm going to be like, eh, that doesn't look that great. I don't even do it, Heidi. I just keep thinking, I keep staying with how I feel because nothing is different in how I look from the moment I was in how I was feeling until the moment I saw my image. It's a perception and that's how powerful the mind can be. So why not stay in it? Why risk it? Why not stay in this? This is how I feel right now. I feel good. I, lo- I love that. You know, and for me, it's a little different because I find that when I'm having one of those days where I'm in the world and I'm feeling really good, usually I'm not as vulnerable to looking in a reflection in a window and thinking I don't look good because th- it really is on those days where I'm tired, I'm grumpy, I'm not having a good day that, that, that I kind of notice, catch that glimpse of myself out of the corner of my eye and I'm like, ugh. Those are those days. So, but but really being aware on those days that I do catch that glimpse of myself. And you're right, it's not all rose-colored glasses and so all self-love all the time. Far from it. But it's on those days still being able to do those things that we know that make us feel really good. So asking myself on a day like that, okay, well that's my cue. Okay. Looking in that, looking in that window and not liking myself, that's my cue. That's my warning that I have to do something to help myself and to make myself feel better. And that something doesn't have to do with food. That's something has to do with life. So maybe it's that day where I might drive myself to a park and take a walk since we can still do that. Or I may go home and just decide that I'm going to spend some time reading a book that I've been really enjoying. And so those kinds of things are the things that I can put into place on those on those days where body image feels a little bit worse. That was really beautifully beautifully said. I'm I'm really glad that that we had this chance to even have just this last few minutes of conversation. Heidi, we are going to have to wind down the the podcast. Um, I do have a final question for you before we end. But before I get to that, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to add? Is there anything that you want to say? Well, a couple, couple things. I'd love to just let people know, you know, especially people who are listening, who are part of, who are women at midlife who are struggling with eating disorders. Um, if if you would like a supportive, a small but supportive group of other women who are struggling, uh, and you're on Facebook, um, completely free, just you know for some support, please check out the Facebook group called Eating Disorders at Midlife, and join. And every day I put out prompts. We work on different things. Um, we've been working on self compassion. We've been working today, we were working on different values and how they align with our eating disorders. So I throw out different prompts each day and the the people in the group are wonderful. They run with them, they support one another. So it's just like a little extra that I started during the pandemic to help um, just, you know, give give people a place to land if they needed it. Um, so, so yeah, that was the one thing I wanted to make sure that I mentioned. It's wonderful because community is so important. And feeling seen and understood is so important. So I am 
really, really glad that you have that. Thank you. I, and I hope, I hope that people will find it after listening. I hope so too. I hope so too. And, and I don't know if you said this, but it is private because I did click on Uh, it before I did the interview. (laughs) And, and that's, I'm saying that in a way of that, this is a really safe Facebook page. Thank you. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Yeah, we have, uh, we have some screening questions, so please answer them. Um, I, you know, I've had very few problems with people who have posted triggering material, but if it's someone who we see post triggering material, we talk with them and, you know, so it winds up being a really nice supportive place and helping people also when we were talking about motivation for higher level of care or other forms of recovery. I, I see the women out there really saying, you know, this program was wonderful. Please try it. Don't be scared to go into treatment. So really helpful. Fantastic. Oh, Heidi, thank you. Of course, before we close up entirely, I have to ask your last question, which as we know, has nothing to do with eating disorders. So Heidi, your question is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Great. So this may not make that much sense in the context of the interview, (laughs) like we said, like we said, because uh, it's more about who I am as a person. So um, What I would like to have written on that bathroom wall about me is the quieter you become, the more you can hear. Heidi, that is beautiful. And I do think it's in context of the conversation because we all know how loud the eating disorder voice can be. I really want to thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for doing it. It's it's a passion of mine. So I, I, I it's my pleasure. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.